0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief, with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and my mom, Bobby Conforto, who had a, an appointment and had to jump off. So I am going to speak for the both of us. Hello. Um, folks, we have a great show for you this week. Uh, we're joined by our friend, Lauren Golfer. Uh, Lauren is a nurse practitioner uh, in the gynecological field, and she is also uh, a grief survivor, having lost her father at age 24 and her best friend um, in her mid 30s, um, and she's also just a wonderful human being. And uh, it was really interesting to talk with Lauren about um, not only her grief experiences, but also you know what it's been like uh, as a person working in the healthcare field during COVID and just how all of these things kind of correlate. Um, it was really, it was really a great, a really great talk. Um, I felt like I learned a lot from Lauren and, um, that is, that's awesome. And she has just a beautiful way of talking about her experiences and, uh, yeah, really just a person with a lot of grace and, uh, we are grateful to her for her, uh, wisdom and also for the work that she does to help others so that is uh that is that and we can't wait for you guys to listen we know you're going to enjoy it as much as we did and um on a show note uh we would love it if a any of you would like to be a guest on processing please let us know you can email us at processing at heritageradionetwork.org you can send us a direct message on Instagram if you follow processing underscore podcast. Um, and if you are a listener and you love the show, I know you hear this when you listen to podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. And you're like, but why? Um, well, it's because if you do that stuff, um, it helps our show become more visible. That's kind of how the, uh, the chemistry of podcasts work. You add a little bit of this plus a little review and a little subscription. And then all of a sudden more people can find the show. And, you know, we want people to be able to find the show because, uh, from what we know from you folks who are listeners, um, it's helpful. And we want to try to be able to help as many people as we can, um, to connect in this conversation around grief and food. Um, so yeah, we would really appreciate that. And also if you just have a listener letter, we love to do listener letter shows. Um, please write us your letter. We can read it with your name or anonymous anonymously on air and, um, yeah. So take care of yourselves and each other and, uh, thank you so much for listening. Bye. today we are joined by our friend Lauren Golfer. Lauren, hello. You are joining us from around the block now that we don't do these live anymore. We're actually, you and I are actually neighbors. So hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me.
3: Nice to see you too.
2: It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Lauren, you are a gynecological nurse practitioner. And the other day I stopped by with my best friend and I was on your stoop and talking to your wife and, um, I just got this idea and I'm like, Oh my God, I would love to speak with Lauren because of her experience in, Mm -hmm. in your, in the healthcare field. And also I know that you have some really significant grief experiences and very good friends with your brother. And it just Mm -hmm. seemed to, I was like, I, it was an aha moment. I'm so glad that you wanted to join us too, because it just, I know this is going to be such a wonderful conversation.
3: Yes. Thank you. I am very excited to be here. I've been listening to a lot of episodes and I love, love, love what you've done and how you give a language for grief. And it's really wonderful. Mm. Thank
1: you.
4: Thank you. I imagine you can add some new words to our language today, right? Maybe. We'll see.
2: (laughs) So, you know, we have all been really enmeshed in one way or another in the past almost two years now and what's been going on with COVID. And I know that, you know, there are so many different perspectives and so many different uh, vantage points and from which people are experiencing this, whether they've had COVID themselves, whether they have lost somebody, whether they are, you know, being affected because their kids are in school and that's a difficult experience. But from someone who is in the healthcare field, I was just so interested and, you know, I follow you on social media and I mm-hmm. know like about some of your, you know, feelings about what's been happening. And I guess- you know, I want to kind of just start off with getting your perspective about what it's because it is, I would imagine and tell me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, that there is a lot of grief associated with, with, you know, being involved in the healthcare field. Um, you know, can you just talk to us about that a little bit?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the biggest, change. And again, I work in an office setting. I'm not in a hospital anymore. But the biggest thing I've seen is people are coming in, patients are coming in, and we do a PHQ-9, which, Bobby, you're probably familiar with, which is a standardized depression screening and on all patients for annual exams. And I would say 70, 80% of people are coming in with an elevated or positive depression screening. And there's just an overwhelming anxiety. And even with patients who have lost family members, many have, many haven't, It is just, it's like everybody lost a year of their life in COVID or or more than a year. And it's been, people have been moving, they have been changing careers, they have been going home and living with their parents, and it's just been wild. And we're actually seeing so many more, and this is anecdotal, I have no research on this, but my boss and I were talking about how we're seeing all of these we're seeing so many abnormal pap smears and people coming back with like HPV who haven't tested positive for HPV in years. And, and we hypothesize that just the overwhelming stress is causing a lot of what we're seeing.
4: Stress hormones, right? And the Absolutely. impact it has on our whole being.
2: And how about the impact of stress that
3: it's had on you personally? I think it has been a rough year for every healthcare worker, no matter what capacity you're in. And I felt like in the beginning of the pandemic, when nobody knew what was going on, you know, And then all of a sudden, the city like cleared out one day. Like, I was taking the train to work every day, and then I got on the train, and it's me and literally one other person on the train where usually you're packed in like sardines. And it was such a haunting feeling to be going at the time to Midtown on a Monday at 10 a.m. It is completely empty. It looks like a ghost town. And I think. Because I have so many good friends who work in healthcare, we really formed our kind of own community. And it's kind of like, we've all been through this thing together in the past year. Um, and so it's been, it's been wild to say the least.
2: I've been really struck by some of, I don't know, I guess what's transpired, you know, in this country, particularly over the past year and a half with COVID is, um, an irony, and I'm sure, and I know that you probably see it too, in the fact that like um, a lot of folks talk, I don't want to make a generalization, but a lot of folks who talk a lot about patriotism and, and sacrifice for country, maybe some of the same folks who are resistant to get a vaccine and, you know, talking about first responders and and, and people like that. Like, I mean, people in the healthcare Profession are so brave and are putting have been putting their lives on the line through this whole thing. I personally feel frustrated by the lack of empathy towards and and personal sacrifice towards um, you know people in the healthcare system and not really being able to wreck. You know, I, my stand isn't to to come here and talk about whether about people getting vaccinated mm-hmm. or not. But I just want wanted to mention and get your perspective on it that I do see a huge lack of, of empathy towards not really realizing what it is like for people, the burnout, the, you know, emotional trauma of losing patients. And of just seeing people, even not like losing patients, but even in, in the situation you're in working in an office setting, seeing how this has affected people mentally. Like, I think there's just this disconnect, um, societally from being able to tap in. And I think empathy is a huge part of it. And it's actually something that I thought about very much as kind of the theme of today's show is empathy. Cause I know you, uh, and even though we aren't like, I don't know you very, very well, I do mm-hmm. know you as an empath and I can mm-hmm. see it. it's very obvious, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, how does that feel as someone in the field to have, to see that kind of neglect for the, um, integrity and bravery of healthcare workers by choosing not to become vaccinated?
3: I think it is one of the hardest things that I struggle with recently in my practice I will say the overwhelming majority, I shouldn't say that. There, Most of my patients who I see are vaccinated. Um, I know that that would be different if I worked in a different place. I think New York City has some of the highest vaccination rates in the country. Um, but it, it's really frustrating and it it depends on kind of the patient and how I I talk to them because I definitely bring it up and I'm not afraid to bring it up. Um, I can see often because the vaccine registry will pull in kind of any vaccine that anybody Mm. gets because I work at Columbia. So we have a pretty high tech um, EMR. And so I'll ask patients who don't want to get the vaccine, I think, say like, oh, what is your hesitancy or what are you feeling? And there's just like a variety of answers and I just try to like meet the patient where they are because you can't you can't get emotional about it even though like on the inside you want to scream and say like what am I doing this for you know and on the flip side there's the patients who are affected by it I have a very um, young patient in her early 20s who had a who was planning on getting vaccinated as she wanted to and then ended up being very, very sick, and they had to delay her vaccine. Turns out she had COVID and she had a pulmonary embolism with no previous health issues at all. And it is, and she was asymptomatic for COVID. She didn't have a typical COVID presentation and just I tell that story a lot to my patients. And then the other thing is if you have something that is not COVID related, it's really hard to go to an ER. Now I see people a lot who I need to send to the ER for different reasons and everybody is scared. And I'm not afraid to share those stories and just say like, I am worried about you and I am worried about your family and I'm worried about me. I will say that too. And Sometimes it registers, sometimes it doesn't. I do have patients who have then gone and signed up for the vaccine. And then I have some who just are not going to get it. And it's it's really frustrating. Um, and I think all of my healthcare worker friends share this. I mean, 95% of physicians in this country have been vaccinated. So if that isn't enough evidence, I think some people are just not going to, I don't know what's going to convince people.
4: Yeah. I really agree with you as a practitioner, having to meet people where they're at, because I I also feel it's not my place to tell somebody what to do or what not to do. And I find myself kind of squirming inside, but then, you know, letting go and just listening to where they're coming from. And I've had several people tell me they want to get pregnant. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the things I wonder if that's something you've encountered where, Mm -hmm. you know, that's an issue for for families when they want to, you know, prepare for having a baby and they don't want to take the vaccine.
3: Misinformation is more powerful than the right information is what kind of my takeaway from this pandemic is because I do, you know, the minute you start scaring people into infertility or issues with a pregnancy, that is such a powerful message. So the way I've handled that is I send people articles or I'll say, I totally hear you because I understand that. That's a very real thing. And so I'll say, I'm going to send you this article from ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. I'm going to send you this article from the CDC. I'm going to send you all of this evidence that says why it's safe and why it's recommended. You know, I can educate you and inform you. And then ultimately you make the decision that feels right for you. That's all all we can do.
4: The intersection of fear and facts. Yeah, Yeah,
2: (laughs) totally. Well, you know, Lauren, I in thinking about this episode and talking to you, you know, I just having had lost experiences myself. And as we're going to get into, I also lost my dad, um, you know, a couple years ago. And, uh, I think that loss, I mean, it affects people really differently. Right. And there's definitely more than two ways that it can, you know, I sometimes say that it can either harden you or soften you. And often it's like a variety of both, but I was, intrigued by, um, your compassion as a a nurse practitioner and what it takes to kind of have that uh, inclination to do that kind of work Mm -hmm. and curious about how, um, if at all, and hopefully you'll just kind of enlighten us to this about how your past experiences with loss may have, um, informed your desire to follow this career path. And yeah, so, you know, as you know, we found out in your, um, pre-interview and mm-hmm. I had known this going in, you lost your father when you were in your early twenties. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. I, yeah. I so can you just, yeah. Can you just talk to us a little bit about, you know, that experience and what that, I mean, that's such a young age, such a p- crucial age. To
3: really yeah, What was that like for you? Yeah. Um, losing somebody at 20, losing a parent at 24, I felt because I, I was a baby at 24. Um, and, you know, there's the argument that parts of your brain don't even fully form until you're 25 or 26. Um, so I, I really, and I, I see this um, when I meet with my younger patients, I think of myself, you know, at that age and, and how I felt. And it was, I mean, you're just trying to figure everything out in general. And I think there is, I hope I don't get dragged for this, but I think there's an inherent selfishness at that age, not in a malicious way. Self-centered. But, yeah. yeah, self-centered in a way where yeah. it's like you just are figuring the world out as an adult. And it's a big transitional time. And I felt like nobody understood. And I, I still think that, you know, everyone's can help as much as they can and can be there as much as they can. But I just felt so alone in it. And I was lucky that in that my friends at the time, even if they didn't have the language to talk about it, just kept me busy. And I just remember I just, I was just busy all the time doing things I was in grad school. I was, for the first time, I was working full-time. I'm like, maybe I'll go to law school. Not because I wanted to go to law school, but because I think the idea of like having to study for the LSAT and apply for something, and it's like, I can't have... If I had a moment of free time, or if I was still, I just could not sit in that uncomfortable feeling, and there's nothing to do with it other than push through it. So that's kind of what I did. I just made myself the busiest
4: Person. yeah for sure Yeah, the distraction keeps us out of our heart and in our head mm-hmm.
2: yeah you know? you know being 24 like you were saying I think it's interesting there are these times in our lives where we are between two of ourselves mm-hmm. I think you know I think when you're like 13 14 15 16 that area is another one where you're like not a kid anymore but you're not an adult right and I think between ages like you know, 19 and 26 are kind of like that too. You know, these, these big trends, like who am I, you know, Mm -hmm. and to like suffer something that like, it it was interesting that you said, you know, selfish or self-centered. It's true. It's, I felt the same way too, when I think about myself at that age. Um, And it's like necessary. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not, you know, a a bad thing because it's kind of necessary Mm -hmm. or we have to kind of be look inward to figure out how to, you know, sculpt ourselves into the people who we're figuring out who we want to be, like you said, and, you know, to, uh, have something that calls your attention away from that kind of important process of looking inward to try to, to shape yourself. It's really, it's a really hard time. It's really tough. And, uh, it takes away it, you know, it's a, it takes away from kind of what the quote natural order of things can kind of be in our own human progression.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. I like that way of putting it, the natural progression, because I feel like it definitely stunted me a little bit in that I was just trying to distract myself so much that I didn't really have a chance at that time to be looking inward and doing that work of like figuring out the world and who I was and where I belonged. and that sort of necessary, uh, self, um, reflection. Mm.
4: And also the loss of a parent really, um, or a sibling, but it causes you to really look at your whole self, your whole life, you know, you review everything. So you must've had quite a battle to keep busy where there was that probably a psychic pull to look in. Mm -hmm. So, um, I was very taken by, um, one of the things that you talked about in your Mm -hmm. uh, pre-interview and that was about that your dad died on Thanksgiving and that he was in hospice mm-hmm. and that it was hard to understand what hospice meant at that time. And you know, I yeah. worked in hospice for 12 years, so I was very mm-hmm. taken by that piece. Mm-hmm. But I also, when you talked about how they served that night, that day, a Thanksgiving meal
2: mm-hmm. and
4: how it seemed so out of place that dad was dying and that he, he was thinking about serving a meal and you were sitting down to the meal. Can you tell us more about that feeling? Because it sounds like you felt a lot of alienation then
3: yeah. and
4: maybe even anger.
3: Yeah, that was a surreal experience. And I understand now it's the same way that you go to a hospital and you go to an ICU or you go to the hospice floor where I used to work and they decorate, you know, seasonally sometimes in in different capacities. And it's like, how, how are we supposed to be part of the outside world when our world is so small, our world is all here and we're just eating? And I remember... Part of this, like looking back, that was so sweet when I think about it is that there was a moment in the meal where they clapped for everybody who had been there making the meal. And I was not in a place to register that, but that was such a beautiful thing for these people to come outside of the hospice and sacrifice their time with their families to make this Thanksgiving meal. And I had zero appreciation for that mm. at the time because I was not anywhere in a place to, I was like my is 10 feet away from me, like death rattling with mm-hmm like dying and I'm supposed to be eating pumpkin pie and everyone around me was like, Oh, delicious food. And I also think there was an age gap in that a lot of the people in hospice at the time, my father was um, in his very early fifties and everybody else is like 70 and up. Mm -hmm. And now even 70 doesn't seem old to me at the time it did. Um, But I, I, it was, it was so wild and I just sort of disconnected. And I think that, experience was kind of like, what am I doing? I, I I can't be a writer to make money. And this is just my journey. Like I was like, I can't sit with that stillness. I can't sit with the aloneness. Like I need to be doing something. And I found that when I worked in hospice, I found that healing for myself because it wasn't about me. It was about how I can take my ability to handle this because it's a hard, it's a heavy topic, you know, dealing with death and helping people die with dignity. And you are, you are caring for a patient, but you are caring for the whole family and you are there to kind of, you know, we saw different ways that different families said goodbye and different things. And that to me was like one of the most healing experiences to be able to give in that way and not even have to, it was sort of like a passive healing I'm doing something outward rather than doing something inward.
2: I'm really struck by how brave that is. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you've ever been able to think of yourself in that way. Maybe you do, but just in kind of hearing, going from your experience and talking about mm-hmm. these really painful memories and like, I mean, gut-wrenching experiences, watching yeah. a parent die, yeah. like it's really horrible. And to have the kind of, inclination and true bravery to then go and do that as a profession and to like, cause it's like facing like the worst thing that ever happened. And mm-hmm. this is not a dig at any other person in the world who doesn't do this, but like many people reasonably so run away from the worst thing that mm-hmm. ever happened to them. You know what I mean? And are like, I don't want to think about that ever again. It's the worst thing that ever happened. And to just have, I don't know, that kind of sense to instead run towards it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's incredibly brave. And I just, you know, want to commend you on that because um, it's not necessarily it's not common, you know, and it's really, it's really incredible to be able to show up like that for other people.
3: Thank you for that. I will say it wasn't, honestly, it was not intentional. I had finished nursing school and I was working as a nurse, not as a nurse practitioner at this point in time. And I, just got a job where I could get a job and it was on an oncology and hospice floor. And I, I didn't run away. Like it didn't bother me. I didn't think anything of it, but I loved, I mean, working in hospice. And again, if if I didn't work in, it was very important for me for a lot of reasons to go into gynecology. And I knew that's where I wanted to be eventually, but working in if I didn't do what I do, I would work in end of life care and palliative care because I just think it's so important and I just remember being like, there's this one like scarf. I think it was like a J. Crew scarf that had like a whale pattern on it that like haunts me to this day. Not in a negative way, but I had this patient who was on hospice care and her mother, her family, um, she had a like a gallbladder surgery gone wrong and got a horrible infection and was dying. And I was talking and I remember kind of like when you first get into healthcare and you're trying to figure out like, well, what are the rules here in terms of, do you, do you call the family and give them updates through the night? Is that weird? Do you not do that? Like just things like that, trying to figure out kind of the etiquette and how it works. And I finally realized like, it's not that there are no rules, there are definitely rules and boundaries, but if you want to call someone to give an update, you certainly don't have to, but you can. And so I remember talking to this woman through the night who was comatose and the daughter, I would talk to the daughter on the phone and she's like, can you just talk to her? Can you make sure her you know, scarf looks nice? And so just calling her and she was so appreciative of that. And I was like, this is, I can't fix, I can't fix your mother's illness and I can't fix this, but I can call you and let you know that like, I turned your mother and I put a swab in her mouth to keep her mouth nice and moist, which you have to do for hospice patients. And like, I just hope you know that like somebody like cares and somebody is doing this. Sorry, I'm getting a little um, emotional. No, like it's so good. And that's what but that's what people did for my father. And Mm. I wasn't able to grasp that. At like at twenty-four, I really thought that we were. killing my dad by taking Mm -hmm. him off his Mm -hmm. medicine. I I did not understand. And then I started to understand. And now I'm a very big advocate for, you know, death with dignity.
4: You brought up so many things. uh, Having worked for so many years in hospice and watched both my parents die um, and watched my in-laws die on hospice. I feel like it's an honor to to do that and to be um, a professional doing that there is such an honor in that. It requires less fear and more faith. And I always thought that as professionals, we hold the faith in the process of dying for the family and for the patient, because they're so scared. They're so scared. And we know that this is a natural organic process that's taking place. And we know that we can't change it. We can't fix it, but we can hold the space, you know, with um, honor and regard.
2: Oh, so you know, Lauren, I'm wondering what it's like, you know, since your father passed away on mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. Dates are so hard as They're it is. So hard. Hard, you know, it really like I know when it comes around to being like my dad's birthday or like the day that he died or even things like Christmas and and, you know, New Year's. I I always think of my dad at, at those dates. But Thanksgiving, you know, is a that's a really tough one because it's such a I mean, for many of us it's a family based kind of occasion and it's meant to celebratory. And when there's such a tragedy attached to that kind of a date, I would imagine it's really, really extra tough. Does it feel that way for you and your family?
3: I think so. I think it's sort of an understanding that it's very, it holds a lot of weight. And I think at first I was like, I'm not going over Thanksgiving. I'm not doing anything because I, I didn't deal with any of my feelings. And You know, my mom would cry, my brother and my mom would talk. They would talk about my dad and I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to acknowledge it. I took a week off work and went back and I was told my mom, like, I don't want anyone to know. And then my family's Jewish. And in the Jewish tradition, when someone dies, you like rip your shirt if you are ultra religious. And so they symbolically will give you a black ribbon and they'll rip the ribbon and you wear it somewhere where people can't see it. So one day I went to work and someone who was also Jewish was like, are you in mourning? And I was like, yeah. And then everyone found out and everyone was kind of like, we're at like the, we didn't have a Keurig yet then in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. we had a Flavia machine. So like we're, okay. at the Flavia, we're at the Flavia machine and people were like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like people don't know how yeah. to talk about it. And that's what like, I just didn't want, I didn't want to. I didn't realize it's the time, but I didn't want to make other people feel awkward, I think is what it was too. I just didn't know that. I didn't want anyone coming up and saying, I'm so sorry, because it makes everyone feel horrible. And it like reminds you that like nothing can be done.
2: I know. It's a really, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And in a lot of ways, that's why we do this show because yeah. like, God, imagine if that wasn't how people had to feel, you know, yeah. imagine yeah. if people could just be like, I am fucked up i'm sad my parent died my partner died my kid you know what i mean like yeah. if 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 the stigma around that and the concern of it making other people feel uncomfortable because it like i mean and it does and it makes sense you know i've i've felt that way myself but it's just like god everyone goes through this it's mm-hmm. like the one thing that literally happens to everyone birth and death and yet we're like pretend that like it doesn't happen to any we're meant to pretend we're taught to pretend that it doesn't happen to anyone you know, and then when it's it happens wild. to you, you're, you're a weirdo. You're like a, a, you know, an outcast or something. And that's a tear. It adds so much insult to injury. It just makes it so much worse. And I hope, you know, the goal of this show and like one of my personal goals in life is just to like make that one piece of it a little bit less hard. It's already hard enough, you know, it really is already hard enough. So you mentioned it's- that
4: you didn't want to have mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. So I guess part of the feeling is that you did, like you said, you didn't want to bring the feelings up. And, you know, I just want to go back to the work situation. We talked about this in one episode about work. But sometimes people go to work, they don't want to talk about it. And that's, they really don't. They want a space where they they don't have to think about it because it's so hard to imagine the duality of feeling and working at the same time. But um, going back to Thanksgiving, so how did you change that? How did that change? Do you have Thanksgivings now? How does it feel for you now?
3: We do. I still, th- you know, it's still sad, but I think now there is a space for it to be sad and.
0: So it's sad,
3: but it's also there is some joy in it. And I like I like to host Thanksgiving. I I don't always I don't you know but I like to do the cooking. I like to prepare the meal. In the last couple of years, we've had sort of what we call orphan Thanksgiving, where (laughs) friends who either live very far away or are not from the U.S. or wouldn't have their own Thanksgiving will gather. And my mom has come the last one or two years and friends, parents. I mean, it's really just sort of like an open invite. Last year, it didn't happen because of COVID. Um, But that's kind of made it, a little better and just sort of reclaiming this holiday and being like, you will, cause it's hard. The holidays are hard and they're sad and they get very sad, you know. Hard for many people, time. right?
4: It's hard if your family's away. It's there's so many combinations of what our lives can be like. So I had just this fantasy just now that a restaurant could open on Thanksgiving and call it orphan Thanksgiving and they can open <laughs> up and just have That's all the people idea. that feel so lost, you know, that really need to connect with each other.
3: Sweet. That's a great idea.
2: (laughs) It's a great idea. I love when you said it's sad and right. It's almost like, uh, an improv when they're, you know, the whole yes. And thing. And I think it's interesting because in a way like grief kind of is like improv, you're kind of winging it, you Mm -hmm. know, and just seeing like what else you learn or where else you can go when you kind of actually just tack on that and to it, you Mm -hmm. know, like where else could, could this develop into? It's really hard to get there. And like anything else, it kind of takes practice. And it's like when you're ready to do that. And so like, you know, if anyone's listening and they're right in the beginning of their grief and they're like, I can't be sad and, you know what I mean? Like that's okay. But like as a goal in some way, I think it's a really, it's good to set in general attainable goals but especially with grief, like that's an attainable goal. It's not Mm -hmm. that like, you're not going to be sad anymore. Right. And it's not like, and sometimes I was saying this the other day because I had someone kind of challenge my grief and my ongoing relationship with my dad and my whole kind of work um, in general. And I just think that like when somebody dies that you love, your grief is in a way like all you have. And that, and I don't mean grief in the like, you know, depression, crying all the time since. I mean, like the grief is the remembering. The grief is the sometimes touching base. It's Mm -hmm. the essence of the ongoing relationship. And so like, I think one of the things that I've learned and I hope that other people learn too as they kind of go through a grieving process or a loss process is, is exactly that, is being like, the end of it. It's not Mm -hmm. ever meant to go away. and you don't really want it to go away because that's it. That's, that's it. That's what you have. You know, the best way I put that is that in the
4: beginning, grief is just grief and it's in your face and it's all there is. And eventually you learn to live with grief. So the living starts and I don't think the
3: grief changes that much. It's just that you learn to live with grief
4: and that's the end. That's the end part, such an important word around it in our language. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I feel like you build an extra layer of skin and it just lives under there. It doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. It doesn't become any less upsetting or sad or heartbreaking. It's just, you learn to work around the heartbreak. And then now you are a person who has that in their story. Right. Or work with with the heartbreak. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So Lauren, a couple of we want to kind of just, you know, make sure we get time to talk about another um another heartbreak and another mm-hmm. really big grief experience you had in your life, which is very different and than the loss of your father, but I know so mm-hmm. so traumatic and horrible. Um you lost a few years ago in twenty eighteen your best mm-hmm.
3: friend, Mitch, yes.
2: in a very unexpected way. Um could you talk to us about
3: that a little bit? Yeah, this is so wild to me because I've had these two extremely significant losses and it just feels off. Like sometimes there's almost this disconnection, like this isn't, this isn't true or this didn't happen. But I, I lost my, one of my childhood best friends, our dads were friends and grew up together. We had this really strong group of childhood friends I talked to him every day for years we would go kind of like in and out for a few years around college when I was coming out and you know we didn't talk as much for a bit but we always kind of came back and so he um Mitch was getting married and just four days before his wedding was 35 I just got a phone call from his fiance saying Mitch died. I just picked up the phone. I see her uh, name on my phone. And I'm like, oh, wedding related. I'm so happy I'm on cloud nine. And she's like, Mitch died. I was like, what? I thought it was a joke. I swear to God, I called three people and I was like, is is this a practical joke? Because he was like this larger than life character, figure. He was really involved in um, like youth mentoring he worked for an organization called bbyo which does jewish youth group um kind of all over the world and he did that for a while so he was a really big mentor for kids he he was just a wonderful wonderful human um very big presence um and i was like it would be like him to fake his own death before his wedding which is such a dark thing to say And I, I think, I think I, I also, I mean, we both had a really like dark sense of humor. I think I developed mine over the years. My family is very morbid just because there's been these losses. Um, but I, I remember, you know, my brother and I out of our friend group, we were the only ones that had like a significant loss and just, we would talk about how different it was. Like, we would be like, oh, it's not like dad. It's so different. It's so this, and it's weird and unsettling to have that to compare it to, but this was just like so unexpected versus an expected thing. And we were supposed to go to this wedding. It was going to be this huge, you know, kind of reunion of sorts. And we ended up going to a funeral. I still kept all of the days off that I was going to take anyway, because I was a member of this wedding party. And I mean, it was haunting. It just did not feel real um, to be 35 and just not wake up one day. And it's, we, there were so many strange things that happened. Like one of my friends telling me like the week after we go, we go to this funeral. I gave a eulogy instead of a wedding toast, which is like the, the I, I don't even know what to do with that sentence sometimes. It's so wild and um I had friends calling and they're like I just picked up my suit from the dry cleaners like for the wedding like the week after the funeral like the suit had been sitting at the dry cleaners and it's it's just such a haunting experience um the tragedy a true tragedy it was a true tragedy and I was the first phone call and I said well do you want she's like can you call everyone and I was like sure and I lost it. I was walking to the subway. I was walking to go to grad school and I just fell down. Like something hit me out of the sky is how it felt. And I could not get up. And this woman, I was like crying hysterically. And this woman came from like, the urgent care on court street, which you probably know where that is, Sarah, and just came out and she was like, what happened? And I couldn't even talk. I was like choking and crying. And I was like, my friend died and she took my hand and she said a prayer and she gave me tissues. And it was this profound act of kindness from a stranger that, and she was like, okay, you're okay. You're, you're going to, you're going to get up and you're going to be okay. And, I got up and I went to school and I did a presentation because I am a compartmentalizer. Yeah. So one um, of the ways
4: we cope in one of yeah. the stress responses,
3: you know, yeah, fight, yeah. flight, or That's freeze. Funny.
4: So you had definitely had that freeze. You just like fell on the floor and, and yeah. you're know, not able to move. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's very intense. And you were, you had mentioned to us that in some of the, uh, you know, preliminary wedding celebrations that you've, you guys had gone to a market in Philly and done a big shop and Mitch made you guys all a beautiful meal and that food was very important to him. He liked to cook a lot, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, I love to cook. Mitch loves to cook. My dad loved to cook. Um, food is so important. I always joke. You know, I'm Jewish, but I'm not religious. But I'll say, you know, I'm here for the food, and yeah. <laughs> that's like my big joke. Um, yeah. I'll host Jewish holidays in a very secular way. I'll have like a break fast in my house for Yom Kippur. I don't fast. I don't observe the holiday, but I will, you know, do a, a spread of breaking the fast, and anybody who wants to come can come, and that makes me feel. That makes me feel like I've built a home, and that makes me feel, you know closer to my father in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. so it's yeah food was very very important I was always calling Mitch and saying like I do I need to let the steak rest and (laughs) how do I pickle this and you know he was always smoking his own meats and you know telling everyone to like subscribe to that like box where they send you imperfect like fruits and vegetables it's better for the environment and you get this organic stuff and it's such a good price and um yeah.
4: Do you remember what he made that, um, the bachelor party that he invited all his friends to and trapped for?
3: We had a, a steak cause it was always, always meat. Um, there was, and I think he made like a, there was blue cheese in there somewhere, mm-hmm. a big salad, you know, lots mm-hmm. of like really hearty comfort foods, delicious red wine. Um, and that was one of his two bachelor parties. He had a whole other one, too. <laughs> tons of friends. But this was the one of, like, our little group where my brother yeah. was there, too. And That's awesome. Yeah.
2: What are some of your food memories? Because, you know, I know that your dad, he used to own... A diner, right, or a a luncheonette? A lunch. It was like they called it a lunch
3: counter. I don't even know yeah. if that term still exists, but yeah, um, very he, cool. Yeah, he owned it with my grandfather. So my my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. On my dad's side, they're all Holocaust survivors. And so my grandfather came through Ellis Island in '46 with my grandmother, and they lived in D.C. and they owned first they owned a little grocery store. And then they own eventually owned a little luncheonette. My dad worked there. It's like a lunch counter, um, and my dad loved to cook. He was he always worked. He's working a lot, so if he cooked, it was usually like on a weekend or on a Sunday. Lots of grilling. Um, There's, like, this meal that just stands out for my mom's birthday one year. He grilled all of these vegetables, which is not – again, I grew up in the suburbs. Like, we ate a lot of takeout and ragu. So (laughs) there was not a lot of, like, high – you know, cuisine, um, yeah. but lots of home cooking. So you know, we it was like this rainbow assortment of vegetables. He was so good at plating, and he just like grilled oh, awesome. this feast for my mom, and it was beautiful arrangement of vegetables. Like, you can grill vegetables. Like, this is amazing. You know, I was, like, <laughs> it was like twelve. I was like, you can put vegetables on a grill. Like, who knew? <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: it's interesting those moments when you actually when you're growing up and you realize like what things are possible. You know what I mean? Like you have to think there is a moment in your life when you come to consciousness that you can grill vegetables. And that's an important moment, especially for someone who loves to cook, you know, it really, it's, that's a really beautiful, beautiful memory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. I just think like the connection between thinking about food when you love food and people that you love can be these like wonderful things that you sometimes want to like tuck into. And sometimes they can be things that are tough and you want to avoid because it's like too close. I know you said that your grandmother who's 97, Mm -hmm. right? 97. That she made a wonderful coconut cake that is very rich and that your dad didn't like coconut, but he loved the cake. And then your grandma couldn't make the cake anymore after his passing. I was wondering, has she made it? been able to make it since?
3: She has, but it, it was years, years for her to make that cake again. And I just remember, like, my dad died and she's like, I will not be making the coconut cake anymore. Ooh. And it was like, it was like the cake um, because every, I don't know, I grew up in a, a very, like, anti-coconut house. I love coconut. Like, <laughs> Me too yeah it's great it's but, divisive though yeah it's very divisive and I remember like my mom was like oh some people eat almond joys but it has coconut in it you know it was like a thing <laughs> so my grandma made this cake and my dad would be like I don't like coconut but I love this cake and it's because the, the cake is it's basically like butter with like some yeah. coconut in it and it was <laughs> delicious and it's super rich and you get like a huge stomach stomachache after it and it's divine it's like a whole experience um and she's like I'm not making this cake anymore and so I make the cake sometimes. You and do? Yeah, mm. I'll make it sometimes. And um, but only like I made it for Adam's birthday one year and I burned it a little oh, bit. No. And it was like, I was like, I can never make it again. But I did. It was okay. You did. But yeah, good. it holds so much weight in our family. Like this cake is like the cake that my dad loved. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I call that
4: deal. I call that bittersweet. And I actually named my business, uh, my bereavement practice bittersweet. Because in the beginning, really? yeah, it's called bittersweet bereavement and counseling. Um, because in the beginning, all those memories feel so bitter, like getting close to it feels so painful. And the hope is that it can become sweet at some point. It turns into sweet, that progression. And that's what you're saying now. Like it's sweet when you have coconut cake and it's sweet when you talk about it. And But at first it's just so bitter.
2: Yeah. Um, well, it's hard to find ways to put into practice the remembrance of someone that you lose, you know what I mean? Cause you can, and it's okay if, if you're not a cook or if you're not, some, it's okay if you don't find ways to put it into practice, but cooking is one of these ways in which we can like tangibly access the connection, you exactly. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like more so than just feeling it or thinking about it. And there certainly are other ways to kind of tangibly access it. You know, maybe some people like hunting or doing other things that mm-hmm. they did with their fa- lost, you know, loved one, but cooking is one of those things where you kind of can really feel it out and you like your senses are so alert. You remember what it felt like eating that with that person or making for that person. And like you said, mom, like sometimes because it is so tangible, because it is like such a, you know, a way to kind of get close and it conjures so many different kinds of memories. It can be hard. It can be like burn you, you know, exactly. I, have a, and, I
4: have a perfect quote for this. It comes from John Donahue and I've actually read the whole poem before, but I'm just going to read one line right now it says, let us not look for you only in memory where we would grow lonely without you. You would want us to find you in presence. And so I think when we do things like cooking or activities that our loved ones loved, it's presence. We feel their presence. And it's not, that, so we, we go from feeling their absence and that's the part of the pain to the presence which really fills our heart. And there's always the end because sometimes you do both at the same time. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So Lauren, one of the kind of, reasons that i wanted to have you on the show today um i've met there are many reasons this has been such a great talk but i think that how we kind of began the show with talking about in this current situation and it can be co- about covid it can be about a lot of things but i mean i think covid it's it's a really you know it's what's happening now and it is stark that there is a lack of of empathy for what's been happening from some folks um some people in their lives lose people and then you know how much that hurts it's the worst you know it is the worst and i think you walk away from that experience changed and i'm not saying that you need to have lost somebody mm-hmm. to need to have empathy and wanna you know in this case get a covid vaccine to protect other people but like for anyone out there who is listening and maybe on the fence, like it's reasonable to have fear about the unknown. It's reasonable to have fear and say, what if I take this and this happens? But like, if one thing I think can speak to people, it's hopefully knowing that like, this is a, this is a painful thing to happen to lose a parent, to lose a friend, to lose a loved one. And to also to be a person who puts yourself in the position of, you know, Dealing with trauma and dealing with with people who are you know dying or needing help or dealing with depression—all the things you mentioned that like you and colleagues are enduring during this time and beyond this time—and I just hope that through hearing uh, not only about your you know professional life but also mm-hmm. your experiences with grief, that perhaps anyone who is on the fence about what to do can kind of tap into that empathy. And realize that part of like what we need to do as humans is look out for each other and try to know that some of these things, there's no, nothing you can do to stop cancer from happening to someone or a heart attack. Like it just, these things happen, but there are things we can do to help people not die from COVID, you know, and to not let healthcare workers be taken advantage of and burn out and be traumatized. And I hope that, you know, um, I th- hope we can all do our part to really take that seriously.
3: I do too. It's, uh, it's, it's really hard. I think sometimes, you know, appealing to different aspects of getting the vaccine and the one that I think is most compelling for me, and this isn't necessarily the most compelling for everyone, um, but when I talk to patients, you know, who haven't been vaccinated and who are very hesitant, I'll say, you know, this is really, it's bigger than you it's, it's about you and it's about keeping you safe and keeping your family safe, but it's about keeping that person you walk by on the street, or if you're in the grocery store or wherever, who you don't, you don't know their story. You know, somebody might have HIV, somebody might be struggling with cancer, somebody might be immunocompromised for other reasons. And I find that the most compelling reason to do all this is that you are really protecting the greater population of people. I mean, this is a public health issue and you know, people are going to make the decisions that they make. We can give them the information that's there and they will do with it what they want. But I find that that's how I try to frame it of looking at, you know, this is bigger than you.
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a great way to frame it. And, um, I think it's really reasonable and we have to, obviously it makes so much sense to find ways of talking to people where they can hear it. You know, I think both of you have really Uh, illustrated the importance of that and the, the grace it takes to have that kind of way to vocalize things. But, you know, I also just think from hearing your story and knowing like that you've not only had the kind of bravery to endure a lot, some really heavy losses and the loss of your father at a young age and seeing him on hospice, but then to go and do the same thing that was, you know, to be in the healthcare field, to be a nurse practitioner, to have worked in hospice, you know, uh, it's, is res- a sign of respect too, for people who do that heavy lift, you know, because what you've done in your career and what you've done in your personal life, like it's a lot of emotional heavy lifting. And I think, you know, if, again, if anyone out there like is contemplating becoming vaccinated or having this issue with a family member or a friend, like, you know, it's a, it's a respect for people who go and do the uh, emotional and physical heavy lifting all the time and just respecting each other is hugely important in this situation and beyond, you know? And so I just think I'm really grateful to you for coming on and doing this emotional heavy lift mm-hmm. of like talking about these experiences and in the hopes to kind of just, you know, keep this type of this message in others. I think we discussed a lot of stuff today that it's really like helpful for people to hear, but, um, that felt pretty poignant to me. And I really appreciate you coming on and joining us and talking about that. Thank you yeah. for having me. Of course. So as we wind down from each episode, we always ask people kind of the same question, which is, um, I mean, you've had a couple of experiences with grief. So, you know, wherever you find yourself needing this advice in the story, but if you could have given your younger self a piece of advice, kind of at the beginning, uh, where maybe you felt like you were unprepared or naive or whatever, you know, or new or or green in in the grieving experience. If you had any piece of advice for your younger self, what would that be?
3: I would tell myself it will be okay. And you have to feel your feelings. You just have to let yourself feel. If you have to fall apart, you fall apart. You lean on the people who allow themselves to be leaned on. You don't hold it against the people who don't have the capacity to hold you when you can't hold yourself and you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, because it might not get easier to feel that heartache, but it will feel easier to get out of bed and to resume the rest of your life, you know, as time goes on.
4: Mm -hmm. So the other thing we always think about at the end of our show is that it's been so lovely to spend time with you, and if we could sit down now and continue this for a meal, um, what would we make? What would we bring to the meal?
3: Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> I know. Um, what would we bring to the meal? So I recently went plant based, but I still cook all of the all of the the stuff. I don't know. I just think a roast chicken, especially even getting into like making Julia Child's like buttered roast yes. chicken is and, like, and,
4: trust, and, trust, and
3: trust and trust so <laughs> good yeah delicious a buttery roast Ooh. chicken
2: Lauren is my favorite thing actually I'm making one tonight because like Ooh. I've been in a like in a funk, and I'm just like what can I do for myself that's kind I'm like I'll make a roast chicken mm-hmm. yeah perfect yeah roast, I love roast chicken I'm actually have it on the stove so if
4: we want to get together later I will bring it <laughs> but I'm making a really good um eggplant marinara and I love making Ooh. marinara sauce. I make it with all kinds of ground up vegetables, you know, and then I saute that in a lot of garlic with garlic and a lot of oil and then lots of nice and marzano tomatoes. And then I um, take the eggplant and I just put it in the oven and, you know, grill it that way. And I've been using almond mozzarella, but I think we'll have to definitely use um. some, I know it's <laughs> for you, you won't, you won't do that, <laughs> but we'll be uh, putting some local in there and I'm going to bring eggplant.
3: Oh, that sounds Ooh. delicious.
2: Okay. That sounds really good. Okay. Well now I feel like I need to bring a salad because <laughs> we already have two main courses. We I need to have a salad. But I love a good salad and I think that um there's something about when you're sitting around a table and like you have these hearty, like really kind of soul satisfying dishes like eggplant marinara and roast chicken, a salad that you can like eat with your hands. You put some on your plate, you know, maybe put some of the marinara on it or whatever. And then at the end, like, I feel like you've already taken one round of food or maybe two. I like to go in with my fingers into the (laughs) bowl and just eat salad right out of the bowl. And I think that's a sign for me of like a really heartfelt dinner spent with people you love. I love that.
3: Yeah. And if we could,
4: could we invite Adam, your brother and Becky, Uh, of course to the meal because they're just the most wonderful of course and your wife exactly all all so wonderful people okay sounds good (laughs) we'll have have to do this okay we got a plan
2: for real (laughs) (laughs) it was so nice to spend time with you and just um it was just a really beautiful conversation and I I I, on behalf of Bobby and I I really appreciate your time and your and your wisdom and your expertise and your grace and and I say this often to folks at the end of the show, but your generosity and spirit of like taking, it it takes a lot for anyone who is a listener who maybe like has had a grief experience or hasn't, but to come on and to share it, like, isn't just the hour, you know, it's the thought of it before it's like, what it brings up after. So really appreciate, you know, that big, that big ask. And it's a very generous thing to do. And I really, we really appreciate
3: it very much. Well, thank Thank you so much. Thank you for making the space for this. I really never seen or heard anything else like this with grief and I think it's so important and even listening to other listeners stories it's like oh we are a little less alone in this mm-hmm. and we're all mm. you know, I'm, I'm just really grateful that this platform exists so thank you for the work you do
2: thank of course you. thank you and yeah. I'm
3: glad that you got that out of it because that
2: is mm-hmm. definitely the goal I'm glad we don't want people to feel alone all right, Lauren, well, we'll see you. I'm sure I'll see you around because we live down yes. the block from each other. Yes, and yes. Um, yeah,
3: thank you so
1: much. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Aarti Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these
3: tubs of dough and it was, they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes, and
1: it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love.
2: Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken, you know, like that's not something that just like comes to you.
1: Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.com. Org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.